0: House Republicans plan to hold an impeachment hearing into President Biden next week, even as they can't agree on avoiding a government shutdown. It's Wednesday, September 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up, political strategists on former President Donald Trump escalating his attacks on President Biden.
1: I think he's going to road test everything under the sun in hopes of finding a punch that can land before the general election next year.
0: Also this hour, public defenders in Oregon say judges are assigning them too many cases and they can't do their jobs effectively. And some high school students in Salem welcome a new rule that makes them lock up their cell phones during the school day.
2: I like that I have no choice but to pay attention in class. And it's cool, like, all these kids that I would never think I would speak to in my life, I'm, I'm talking to now.
0: In sports, Red Sox lose. Sunny in the 70s today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korova Coleman. The U.N. Security Council is meeting today on Ukraine, and President Volodymyr Zelensky says he plans to lay out some of his peace proposals. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports he's trying to get more countries that have been on the fence to side with him against Russia.
4: President Zelensky has been making the rounds of the U.N. meeting privately with some world leaders and publicly urging the General Assembly to help him push back against Russian aggression.
2: Ukraine is doing everything
4: to ensure that after Russian aggression, no one in the world will dare to attack any nation. Zelensky is trying to build up support for his ideas on how the war should end with Ukraine's sovereignty intact. He says he's
3: preparing a peace summit on that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. President Biden will hold meetings on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly today. He'll meet with the leaders of Brazil and Israel. Attorney General Merrick Garland is set to appear on Capitol Hill today to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. Lawmakers are expected to grill him about several high-profile Justice Department investigations. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports they include those into former President Donald Trump.
5: Many lawmakers on the Republican-led committee are eager to question Garland about the investigations that led to two indictments this summer against Trump. One tied to the alleged mishandling of classified documents, the other to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But Republicans are also expected to press Garland about another investigation, the one into President Biden's son, Hunter. Republicans accused the DOJ of targeting Trump and going easy on Hunter Biden, even though the younger Biden was indicted last week on federal gun charges. In his testimony, Garland is expected to tell lawmakers that it isn't the Justice Department's job to take orders from the president or Congress about whom to investigate. It's the department's job to uphold the rule of law. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
3: The United Auto Workers remain on strike against three plants of the big three U.S. automakers. The union warns the strike could spread if the automakers don't make significant progress in negotiations by Friday. Federal authorities are charging a New York City daycare operator and a second person in connection with the overdose death of a one-year-old boy. The boy and three other children were exposed to fentanyl last Friday. A package of the opioid was discovered in the home-based daycare center. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams claims the defendants poisoned the children.
6: Because they were running a drug
7: operation from a daycare center, a daycare center. A place where children should be kept safe, not surrounded by a drug that could kill them in an instant.
3: But the daycare owner maintained she did not know the fentanyl was there. Her lawyer says that she had rented a room in the daycare to her cousin, a man who may have been responsible. You're listening to NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Healy says the state's shelter system is reaching its capacity because of an influx of migrants. Healy says about half of the people in the system right now are new arrivals from other countries. She estimates that's about 11,000 people. Healy wants the Biden administration to help out since she blames Washington for failing to tackle immigration reform.
8: So we, as a state, are now forced to bear the
9: burden and the responsibility of this. And as I say, I am grateful to all in government and outside of government who have stepped up and who have answered the call. But I want to be really clear that this is not sustainable.
0: Leaders on Beacon Hill are debating Healy's request for $250 million to fund the shelter services. Boston Public Schools is on track to avoid going into state receivership. Mayor Michelle Wu says the district has met 29 of the 31 mandates outlined by the state. Those initiatives include improvements to special education services, student transportation, and school safety. Wu tells the Boston Herald the district now just needs to complete bathroom renovations and a facilities plan. Those are expected to be finished by the end of the year. State legislators are debating changes to parentage laws. Advocates call the current laws outdated and say they put burdens on LGBTQ plus families and people who have children through assisted reproduction. WBUR's Kyrie
10: Thompson explains. The Massachusetts Parentage Act would give people more ways to establish parental rights regardless of their gender or the circumstances of a child's birth. State Senator Julian Sear is a co-sponsor of the bill, which the state legislature has debated going back to 2019. He says the time is right to send it to Governor Maura Healey's
2: desk. I'm bullish about our chances here. Uh, This is long overdue, and I think this is something I hope we can get over the finish line and really make sure that Massachusetts is living up to the
11: promise of what this Commonwealth has been about for so long.
10: Massachusetts would be the last New England state to update its parentage laws. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kyrie
12: Thompson.
0: Witnesses say the man who died at Gillette Stadium over the weekend collapsed after being punched in the head. The Norfolk District Attorney says the 53-year-old New Hampshire man died from injuries he sustained during Sunday night's game between the Patriots and Miami Dolphins. Witnesses claim the man got into a fight with a Dolphins fan. Investigators expect to receive autopsy results later this week. So far, no arrests have been made. It's 7:06.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com and Babson College. Explore Babson College graduate programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. The Red Sox bullpen
0: couldn't hold a lead last night in Texas. The team lost to the Rangers 6-4. to The Sox and Rangers will play the rubber match of their series this afternoon. Sunny today and in the mid-70s. Clear overnight. Temperatures will be in the 50s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
13: WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C.
7: Anime Martinez in Culver City California next week House Republicans will hold their first impeachment hearing for President Biden they're trying to make a case that he profited from the business dealings of his son Hunter Biden this impeachment inquiry is very different in substance and process from others in the past NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith has been looking in to these differences uh Tamara, all right low let's start with the substance here how does the evidence house republicans have now compare with past impeachment cases
15: in past impeachments there was a lot more evidence at this stage so far house republicans haven't been able to back up most of their claims against biden so let us go back in time to president nixon at that point um By the time the House voted to launch his impeachment inquiry, there was so much evidence the vote was overwhelming and bipartisan, and he did ultimately resign. With former President Bill Clinton, there was independent counsel Ken Starr's report and lots of physical and other evidence that the president had lied under oath about his relationship with a White House intern. Uh, With former President Trump's first impeachment, there was the transcript of his call with Ukrainian President Zelensky trying to pressure him to investigate a political rival. Joe Biden. Uh, And also funding for Ukraine had been held up. Uh, And finally, with Trump's second impeachment, he was accused of inciting an insurrection on January 6th at a rally that was carried live on TV.
7: But House Republicans have been investigating Hunter Biden since they took power in January. So do they have something that makes this rise to the level of impeachment?
15: Well, they have a dense cloud of accusations, some of which have been undermined by the evidence and depositions that they've already gathered in their investigations. I talked about this with Michael Gerhardt, a professor of constitutional law at the University of North Carolina, and he says that this is unlike any other presidential impeachment in U.S. history.
2: But in this situation, we don't have any credible evidence, and instead this process seems to be Uh, what is sometimes called a fishing expedition.
15: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that the whole point of the inquiry is to find evidence of impeachable behavior, which is to say they haven't found it yet. Um, And another difference here, there are Republicans in swing districts that have expressed real concern about the lack of evidence. So if they were to get to the point of putting up articles of impeachment... There's no guarantee based on what people are saying now that they would pass. The yeah,
7: thing is, though, with Nixon, Clinton or Trump, they were being investigated for things they did while they were president. Uh, but with Biden, this all happened, what, a long time ago.
15: Yeah, they're talking about a time nearly a decade ago when Hunter Biden was doing foreign consulting work and the elder Biden was vice president. Um, Keith Whittington, an impeachment expert at Princeton, says that does make this case unique.
1: I think it's a much harder challenge to convince members of Congress that it's appropriate and useful to impeach an officer based on prior conduct that occurred prior to their holding office.
15: So that's another way that this is unlike other past presidential impeachments.
7: All right. What's President Biden saying about this?
15: So far, he's been dismissive and said he's focused on doing his job for the American people. The White House has called this investigation a stunt meant to damage the president. And they point out the first hearing comes just two days before a potential government shutdown.
7: You can find more of Tamara Keith's reporting on NPR.org. Tamara, thanks.
14: You're welcome. The head of the United Nations has issued a warning to the world. Secretary General Antonio Guterres told the General Assembly yesterday, quote, we are inching ever closer to a great fracture.
16: Our world is
17: becoming unhinged. Geopolitical tensions are rising. Global challenges are mounting. And we seem incapable of coming together to respond.
14: The U.N. has been a symbol of global unity since it was formed in the wake of World War II. But there are signs that its influence may be waning. Joining us now is Colm Lynch. He's a senior global reporter for DEVEX and has been covering the U.N. for years. Good morning, Colm. Thanks for being here.
5: Uh, Hi, Leila. Thanks for having me.
14: I want to start with who is in attendance. You've got this gathering of world leaders at the General Assembly, but only one leader of the five permanent member nations of the UN Security Council showed up this year, and that's President Biden. Why all the no-shows?
5: So um, for different reasons. Uh, President Biden. Putin doesn't come often. He is the subject of an arrest warrant by the International Criminal Court, mm-hmm. so you know he might not be crazy about the idea of coming into the United States. Um, President Xi doesn't come often; um, only if he has a big sort of you know message that he wants to send. Um, the more striking absences of the the French and the British, uh, who do come quite frequently. And um, the timing is a little strange because the Europeans and the Americans are very much trying to kind of rally into national support for their position on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And this is a good opportunity to do it. And the Russians and the Chinese aren't there. And so, um, you know, their absence is felt. Um, I think the French President uh, Macron, um, you know, sort of uh, said that he had to, you know, he had to host visits by uh, King Charles and uh, and the uh, and Pope Francis. But I, I, you know, would imagine that Pope Francis would have understood why he had to miss that meeting to yeah. kind of deal with this sort of broader issue, uh, deal with sustainable development goals and the and the war in Ukraine.
14: But what do the absences say about the standing of the UN? I mean, this is supposed to be the place where global leaders come to work out the world's problems. If it's skippable, what does it say?
5: Well I think it I think it says that there are a lot of these meetings where the world leaders come together so you know the French and the British they were just at a G20 meeting um, you know, it, it, you know, President Macron hosted uh, a big sort of, you know, global meeting on financing for development, and, and this UN General Assembly is really focused on development. Mm-hmm. So he may feel that he's kind of, you know, done his duty this year. But, you know, there are times when, you know, these presidents don't come. So this just happened. I don't know whether it's a coincidence or not, but this just seems to be particularly striking. You know, and at a a period where the big powers are really sort of fighting a serious battle for hearts and minds among the global south. And so, you know, it strikes me as a sort of missed opportunity for for both camps.
14: So you mentioned uh, there are other places that world leaders are working out their issues. So is the UN no longer the premier place to address geopolitical fault lines?
5: Well, the the you know the UN is no longer active on the security front. The Security Council where you know Russia has a veto power has been largely paralyzed for the last 3 years. You know, most recently because of the war on Ukraine, it's impossible for the Security Council to take any measures to deal with the conflict because Russia will veto them. Um there have been previously, you know, immediately after the pandemic started, tensions between the United States and China. And those prevented uh, much action by the Security Council to deal with the pandemic and to try and coordinate activities. So you have, as you said, these growing fault lines between the U.S. and the Europeans on one side and the Chinese and the Russians on the other. And it's making it much more difficult to do uh, business on the security front. But, you know, the U.N. does a lot of things, right? And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, the absence of the Security Council has created a you know a b- bigger opportunity for the General Assembly, which includes all the membership in the United Nations, 103 members, to be a little bit more active. Um, they don't have the same ability to enforce their decisions, but it's a good opportunity. I mean, a lot of what the UN does is about theatrics, right? And so they're, they can send a very harsh signal to Russia and do things like that, and it's been useful for that.
14: And very quickly before I let you go, um, does it need to be reimagined?
5: Um. There, the the effort over the next year is basically an effort to reimagine it. I mean, the secretary general is engaging in a hugely ambitious reform project. Um, reforms usually get stilted by the reality of you know intergovernmental negotiations, but um, that's going to be something to watch.
14: Colin Lynch is a senior global reporter for Devex. Thank you so much for your time and your insights.
5: Thanks for having me. Take care.
7: Los Angeles Angels star Shohei Ohtani is a once-in-a-century talent in baseball.
14: With a fastball that reaches 100 miles per hour and the power to hit home runs out of the park, Ohtani is building a legacy as Major League Baseball's greatest two-way player.
7: Yeah, The only other player to even come close to what he's done as a hitter and pitcher in Major League Baseball history was New York Yankees legend Babe Ruth.
14: But... In a game against the Cincinnati Reds last month, Ohtani was pulled out abruptly, much to the dismay of the Angels TV play-by-play announcers from Bally Sports.
5: And I think that might be it for Shohei.
10: Well, hear the crowd murmur and Shohei will come out of the game. We've seen this
2: way too many times this year.
14: A routine pitch in the second inning tore a ligament in his elbow, and after elbow surgery this Tuesday his season was officially over.
7: Angels general manager Perry Manassian spoke about why they'll miss Otani's presence as they finish out the season.
18: He's somebody that loves playing
10: and just doesn't take it for granted. Wants to be out there every day and wants to be with his teammates and wants to perform for the fans and and, uh, for the organization. And I have a lot of respect for that.
2: Before
14: signing with the Los Angeles Angels in 2018, Otani started playing professionally in Japan
7: right out of high school. Shohei Otani never had more than two straight losses in a season. MLB or Japan. Otani reassured his fans on Instagram that his procedure went well and said, quote, it was very unfortunate that I couldn't finish out the year on the field, but I will be rooting on the boys until the end. While elbow surgery
14: ends this season for Otani, he'll be able to hit by opening day in March next year. However, he won't be pitching again until 2025.
7: Now, Otani will be a free agent after this season, so who knows whether he'll return to the Angels when he recovers. Now, despite his injuries, though, Otani is primed to get paid. His current Angels teammate, Mike Trout, has the largest contract in MLB history at just over $426 million. And the early chatter is that it might take a half a billion dollar deal to get Otani to sign his name on a dotted line. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, the Oregon Supreme Court is set to decide if judges can force public defenders to take on workloads that some say make it impossible to represent people effectively. It's 719.
13: WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com authentic, artful, accomplished. TLC's board-ready boot camp, now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu slash together. As genetic
4: studies go global, scientists have found a gene variant that raises the risk of Parkinson's disease in people of African ancestry.
18: Our basis of knowledge for genetics in Parkinson's disease was limited to northern European populations. So we decided to seek ways to globalize
4: genetics. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
8: Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: A high near 74 today under sunny skies. It stays mostly clear tonight as it falls to a low around 55. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 72. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the Sci-Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at sci From Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden.
7: And I'm A. Martinez. That bottle of extra virgin olive oil sitting in your kitchen might not be something you use every single day. The good stuff is expensive, after all. But in Spain, olive oil has been quite affordable. Until now. Miguel Macias brings us this report. It is busy at a popular breakfast spot
18: in a working-class neighborhood of Seville, in southern Spain. People often eat breakfast out. And by far the most popular kind of breakfast is toast with olive oil and Spanish ham. Spain is the world's largest producer of olive oil, and most of it comes from the South Andalusia. So it's no surprise that tables at cafes feature an actual bottle of extra virgin olive oil customers can freely pour on their toast. You'll find it at breakfast, in most daily meals, and families always have plenty of olive oil at home. You get the point. Olive oil here is cheap. Basically, we had had at least two very bad crops, so that has created a certain scarcity. Cheap no more. That was Javier Rivas, an economist and professor at EAE Business School in Madrid. He says the recent drought has cut production of olive oil in Spain drastically. The weather conditions have been very bad for crops in
17: general, we have a terrible drought and that has provoked that the oil prices have increased more than 100% in 11 months. And it's not
18: just the lack of rain in Andalusia, which is down 22%, it's also the heat the number of days over 100 degrees has skyrocketed in the past two years. Dos años así, se carga el olivar. Moisés Caballero is secretary for olive oil makers in the region of Estepa. They pride themselves on the high quality of their extra virgin olive oil. He says that two more years of this kind of climate will simply kill olive tree plantations in the south of Spain. El tema es el agua. The most el strategic tema element is water. Los... It's a very
20: delicate matter, and
18: to... we are already late when it comes to addressing it our sector is ready to invest in new technologies. Such as desalinating seawater to use it in a highly efficient way to water olive tree plantations. But this kind of price hike might become a common occurrence. The European Central Bank recently published a study concluding that climate change will result in a yearly increase of food prices and overall inflation. Moises Caballero likes to put things in context. This product cannot be so cheap anymore. We need to change public perception, to reclaim the role of extra virgin olive oil as the best vegetable oil in the world. So instead of talking about how prices have increased so much, we should realize that such low historic prices were simply ridiculous. When asked about whether a speculation with the price of olive oil might be taking place, he says... Nobody here is speculating with the price of olive oil. It is simply that there is not enough of it. We've gone through two years where the production has been down by 50%. And that drastic drop in production volume is not only affecting the local market. Exports to the U.S. are down by 25% due to the high prices and the competition of cheaper olive oil coming from other countries such as Tunisia, Turkey, and Morocco. Alberto Barquin manages Alimentación en Garnita, a small grocery store in the Macarena neighborhood of Seville. He sells jars of two and five liters of high-quality extra virgin olive oil, but he might stop selling it altogether He's tired of the weekly price increases.
7: You order olive oil on a Monday, and the price has increased. The following Monday, it goes up again, 40 cents, 50 cents, a whole euro. It goes up every week. Outside
18: of Alimentación Encarnita, a small square crowded with tables and neighbors having breakfast. And for now, despite the prices, it doesn't seem like locals are giving up on their toast with extra virgin olive oil. For NPR News, I'm Miguel Macias in Seville.
14: A new album drops today from an unexpected source, the Consumer Product Safety Commission. The federal agency usually issues recalls and public service announcements. Now it's trying a new strategy for warning young people about safety hazards. NPR's Rachel
21: Treisman reports. How many times in your life have you been reminded to wear a helmet while biking? But has that message ever sounded like this? When you in the streets, take caution. Protect your neck and your noggin. That's Protect Ya Noggin, the lead track off the agency's new album.
10: It's called We're Safety Now, Haven't We, Volume One.
21: Joseph Galbo is a social media specialist at the CPSC,
10: I think for us, it speaks to the forever nature of talking about safety, the responsibility that we all have to make safe choices in our lives, while CPSC tries to make sure that companies are making safe choices with their products.
21: The album cover art features a bunch of photoshopped animals interacting with some familiar objects.
10: We have Potato the dog, who's standing on top of the ATV. We have Handsome Ron the bird, who's flying on the smoke alarm. And that's Quinn the safety fox wearing the bicycle helmet.
21: These are the memes that deliver the CPSC's messaging all over social media. Their album is also aimed at young people. The agency started by looking at data, specifically injuries that are most common in people ages 13 to 24. Things like ATV and bike accidents, unattended cooking, and distracted texting topped the list.
10: Wearing a helmet when you ride an ATV or making sure you change your smoke alarm batteries, there are definitely important things that if you remember to do, could save your life.
21: Recording artists created six songs, each with a different warning and musical genre. The artists are staying anonymous to keep focus on the message. There's a K-pop number about firework safety. A reggaeton song about smoke alarms. And even a lo-fi track. The album is available on the agency's website and YouTube channel, for now. Galbo hopes it will eventually make it to Apple Music, Spotify, and even radio stations. Plus, all the songs are in the public domain.
10: Our hope is that everyone takes them and downloads them and makes audio out of them and has fun with them.
21: After all, we're safety now, haven't we? The point, Galbo says, is that there are small changes you can make to live a safer life, and the Consumer Product Safety Commission is here to help. Rachel Treesman, NPR News.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.40 on Morning Edition, how high school students in Salem are coping without having their phones during the school day. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today.
13: WBUR supporters include Vermont Tourism. Trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont a little bit like a dream, very much open. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The leaders of Israel and Brazil will be meeting with President Biden today in New York. That's where Biden addressed the U.N. General Assembly yesterday. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is convening a special climate summit today. Linda Fasulo has more.
22: Guterres says he'd like to see large greenhouse gas emitters make special efforts to zero out emissions, phase out fossil fuels, and provide aid to developing countries to do so. The UN meeting is meant to showcase nations which are implementing policies to keep global warming to within 1.5 degrees Celsius.
6: Interest rates in the U.S. are expected to remain unchanged when Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and his fellow policymakers wrap up their latest meeting today. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley.
23: Inflation has come down a lot uh, since last summer when it topped out at just over 9%, but it's still north of 2%, which is the Fed's target. So the question Powell and his colleagues are wrestling with is, are interest rates high enough now that inflation will continue to come down on its own? Or do they need to push rates even higher and possibly raise the risk of recession? For the moment, uh, the Fed is expected to take a breather and leave rates where they are.
6: That's NPR's Scott Horsley reporting. This is NPR News from Washington. This
0: is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The average age of the state's public housing stock is 57 years old. Many of these units have been neglected for years because of a lack of funding. A WBUR and ProPublica investigation shows a backlog of maintenance is preventing those on the wait list for low-income housing from living in these units. WBUR. D- Christine Wilmson reports.
24: Residents of the Chelmsford Public Housing Development have long complained about sewage backups and bathtubs and sinks. Housing Director David Hedison says the state knew sewer lines were a problem. By the time the state sent money to fix the pipes, they were already disintegrated.
11: It took us almost 10 years to get funding just for one of the buildings to have the sewer line replaced.
24: He says some apartments are uninhabitable.
11: I wouldn't want some of my family members to live in some of the public housing units across the state. They're
24: falling apart. In August, Governor Mara Healy signed a budget of $107 million for public housing operations, millions less than housing agencies say they need. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Christine Wilson. Northeastern University
0: will join a new federal network aimed at predicting future pandemics. Researchers plan to use data to make predictions. The goal of those predictions will be to help lawmakers keep people safe in a pandemic or disease surge. Northeastern will get more than $17 million in federal funding over the next five years. A woman accused in a racist attack on a Melrose city councilor will serve six months probation. Prosecutors say Joan DiDomaso verbally attacked Councillor Maya Jamaluddin at a gas station in December. They say she also shoved the councilor's husband. The Boston Globe reports DiDomaso will also need to take an anti-Islamophobia course as part of her sentence. Jamaluddin is the first Muslim person to serve on the Melrose City Council. It's 7.33.
4: We're funded by you our listeners and by Boston University Student Employment connecting you to smart reliable students for part-time work free job listings at bu.edu/seo the Red Sox lost to the Rangers 6-4 to last night in Arlington,
0: Texas. The teams will wrap up their series this afternoon. Women's professional soccer is returning to Boston. The yet-to-be-named team will join the National Women's Soccer League. As WBUR's Walter Rothman reports, the ownership group says it plans to succeed where past teams have failed.
2: The city's last professional women's soccer team, the Boston Breakers, folded back in 2018. But the owners of the new team say a lot has changed in five years, with TV ratings and ticket sales for women's games rising across the country. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's excited by the team's promise to renovate the nearly 80-year-old White Stadium in Franklin Park.
19: White Stadium is going to be a hub of championships, of athletic excellence, but also of community and passing that down to the next generation.
2: The team will seek community input on a name and will start playing in 2026. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. We'll have
0: another great day today weather-wise. We'll have clear skies and high temperatures in the mid-70s. It falls to around 55 tonight, then tomorrow sunny again and slightly cooler with a high in the low 70s. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
7: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
14: And I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. It's widely reported that public defenders representing people charged with crimes who can't afford a lawyer are often overloaded with cases. In Oregon, a group of them now say their caseloads are so high they're failing their clients by not providing the kind of defense required by the Constitution. As Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson reports, yesterday they made their case to the state Supreme Court.
2: Anyone charged with a crime is entitled to a lawyer. But for nearly two years in Oregon, thousands of people charged with crimes haven't gotten representation when they're supposed to. There's just not enough public defenders. Despite that, some judges in Oregon are forcing attorneys to take on more cases, even when they say they can't. Or you have the capacity to do this or not? That's Marion County Circuit Court Judge Thomas Hart during a hearing in June. Tim Downen, a public defender, told the judge it would be hard to take on the client he'd been assigned, a man prosecutors had charged with serious crimes.
1: If you're asking me if I have capacity, I'm going to tell you that I don't have ethical capacity today. Do I have triage capacity? Can I shoehorn him into my caseload? If the court orders me to do so, I'll answer to that, yes. But that is triage capacity, Your Honor.
2: That means that my representation of one person might adversely affect another. Judge Hart responded that his job as a judge was to protect the defendant's rights.
6: Quite frankly, I don't have any other statutory duty or obligation than to appoint qualified counsel. And you're qualified. You've been appointed.
2: After that, the nonprofit legal firm where Down and Works objected and appealed his forced appointment to the Oregon Supreme Court. This is not just a problem in Oregon. John Mosier is deputy director of the Sixth Amendment Center, a nonprofit that studies public defense across the country. He says while this problem varies state to state and even within states, it can be hard to compare when many places don't track it. Oregon is making lots of news in the state and nationally, because of this unrepresented defendants' crisis that it's facing right now. But at least it knows how many people in each courtroom don't have a lawyer right now. The drivers of the issue, he says, may look different in different parts of the country. Lack of funding. Lack of political will. In Oregon, Mosher's nonprofit advised the state on legislation that passed this year to address structural problems in the legal system. Now, the state will be able to hire new public defenders and send them to counties where there aren't enough. But completing that process is expected to take years. Moser says when there are too many cases and not enough attorneys, criminal defendants don't get the protections they're entitled to. The lawyer must be an advocate for the accused. The right to counsel means more than just being a warm body that happens to have a bar card standing next to you in court. That's what Kristen Asai, the attorney for the Public Defenders, argued before the Oregon Supreme Court yesterday.
25: They're being forced to choose between clients. They're being forced to violate their ethical duties and provide less than constitutional representation.
2: Paul Smith, who represented the state, argued that the judges are right to appoint a lawyer, even if that attorney says they can't ethically do the job well.
11: Courts have inherent authority to call upon officers of the court, attorneys, to represent indigent defendants in criminal cases.
2: The Oregon Supreme Court did not indicate when they might issue a ruling. Experts say that regardless of what they decide, the public defense crisis in Oregon isn't going away anytime soon. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland.
7: Former President Donald Trump is escalating his attacks on President Biden, another sign that Trump's campaign is looking past the Republican primaries and ahead to the general election. At a recent rally in South Dakota, Trump referred to Biden almost 60 times. He mentioned Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his closest rival, in the Republican primary just two times. As NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez reports, Trump and his allies are working in tandem to weaken the president ahead of the election.
19: Ladies and gentlemen, the 45th and the 47th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump.
7: Within
1: five minutes of this speech, former President Donald Trump aimed his exaggerated and false attacks at the current president. He called President Biden a leader of communist maniacs who were looting the middle class. He claimed children were being mutilated. He even attacked Biden's golf game.
6: This guy, the worst
20: is... Did you ever see his golf swing? He said he's a six handicap.
1: His supporters loved it. They laughed. They cheered. <laughs> Calling him Crooked Joe, Trump referred to Biden as a Manchurian candidate and head of a crime family.
5: They're just destroying our country. And if we don't take it back, if we don't take it back, In 24, I really believe we're not going to have a country left. There's not going to be anything left.
1: He cited how far he was ahead in the Republican polls and called Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida an unskilled politician. But that was about all he said about his Republican rivals.
10: Donald Trump is up over his Republican opponents by anywhere from 40 to 50 points. He doesn't need to talk about any of them.
1: Hogan Gidley is a former White House spokesman who still speaks regularly with Trump. He says his old boss has his eye on the main prize. The focus
10: is and should be on Joe Biden. That's the person Republicans want to unseat. That's the person Donald Trump should continue to attack. And that's what he's doing.
1: According to Ad Impact, a firm that tracks ad spending, Trump and his super PAC have shifted the focus of his attack ads to Biden after spending millions in ads against DeSantis this spring. Republican strategist Alex Conan says the increasingly vicious attacks are a way to attract headlines and also workshop material to see what resonates. Donald Trump lost in 2020 in part because he never found a good attack line against Joe Biden. I think he's going to road test everything under the sun in hopes of finding a punch that can land before the general election next year. Trump has been indicted in four different criminal cases, but he got some help from surrogates in the House of Representatives who shifted attention away from those cases by launching an impeachment inquiry of Biden over his son's business dealings. The White House says Republicans have no evidence to back up their claims and insists Biden did nothing wrong.
6: I don't care what anybody tells you, anytime you're in a White House, and you're facing impeachment, that's a potentially dangerous environment for the incumbent president to be in, regardless of how legitimate or illegitimate it is.
1: Doug Sosnick knows this all too well. He was an advisor to former President Bill Clinton, who was impeached in 1998. Sosnick thinks Biden, like Clinton, will come out ahead politically in the long run, but says impeachment gives Trump a counterpunch as he faces looming criminal trials.
6: Well, he's either got to defend himself, which I think he can't do, or he's got to put out alternative programming, at least in the way he thinks. So putting out this red meat, retrospective look on America for his base is very effective.
1: That's a message that will help him in the short term. But Sosnick believes it will ultimately cost him in the general election. Franco, Ordóñez and News.
7: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Wednesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, Republicans at a House Judiciary Committee hearing today are expected to grill U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland over the investigations into Hunter Biden and former President Donald Trump. Mid-70s and sunny today. Clear skies and mid-50s tonight. Low 70s tomorrow and sunny. Right now it's 59 degrees in Boston.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cahal Brera a humanistic Jewish congregation celebrating the high holidays in person and online. For more info and activities, go to visitkb.org. And Jamaica Plain Open Studio's 30th year, this weekend, starting at 11 a.m. Exhibits across J.P. Maps and info at jpopenstudios.com.
0: Boston-based technology firm Clavio is going public today. Shares of the company will begin trading this morning on the New York Stock Exchange. Several reports say the stock will open at $30 per share. That would bring in more than half a billion dollars for the company. The historic Boston restaurant and bar, Jacob Worth, may reopen next year. It first opened in 1868, then closed in 2018 after a fire. There were plans to turn it into several different businesses. Its owners tell the Boston Business Journal the plan now is to return it to a German beer hall with piano sing-alongs when it reopens next winter. It's 7.45.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoy. Could you make it through the day without your smartphone? That's what's facing students at Salem High School who now have to lock up their phones for most of the school day. WBR's Carrie Young reports the move was made by educators who say the phones can distract students and prevent socialization.
25: It's the end of the school day at Salem High School on a recent Friday afternoon. Before students leave the building, they stop by one of about a dozen small wall magnets that look kind of like buttons. The wall magnets unlock the small gray pouches that the students are required to keep their phones in for most of the school day. It's part of a new policy this year aimed at limiting cell phone use during class. 11th grader Emily Pimentel says she doesn't mind the new accessory.
26: People can find a way to break it, but I like it so far.
25: Fellow 11th grader Rocco Ryan admits he initially hated the idea of losing cell phone access, but he's quickly changed his tune.
2: I like that I have no choice but to pay attention in class. It's going to lead to more success for me.
25: And there's another upside. He's actually getting to know more of his classmates.
2: It's cool, like, all these kids that I would never think I would speak to in my life I'm I'm talking to now.
25: And that's encouraging news to Salem school officials. The high school purchased these pouches from a company called Yonder to force kids off their phones and improve concentration and engagement. The district piloted the same policy last year in the middle school due to skyrocketing cell phone use after the pandemic. Guidance counselor Brad Maloon says when kids first returned to the school building, phones became a huge distraction in class.
11: It became we like, wow, everyone has a phone. We were saying we, we need to get like, them back on learning full time and not thinking about what text message or what Snapchat notification is going to go off in your pocket.
25: Research shows that excessive cell phone use can negatively impact teen mental health and attention span. A recent study published by the American Psychological Association shows that teenagers who cut the time they spent online in half felt measurable improvements in their self-esteem. English language arts teacher Abby Sherwood says even though it's still early in the school year, those results seem to be playing out
26: in her Salem high school classroom. I think that overall students are less distracted because that other narrative of their online life or what's going on, it just, it just isn't there, you know, and so they just seem a lot more focused. Salem
25: is part of a small but growing number of schools in Massachusetts that are turning to these lockable pouches or some other method of storing away phones. Others include Chicopee schools and the Elliott K-8 to school in Boston. And the state is encouraging others to join by offering grant funding to districts who pilot similar programs. Stevens Reich, the superintendent of Salem Schools, says those grant funds will help cover the $25,000 cost of the pouches in his district.
20: I do think that investing in our students' well-being and uh, helping to uh, create a culture of achievement in school is, is an investment well spent.
25: Zreich acknowledges these pouches might not be fail-proof. Students have forced them open. But the idea is to break the habit of constantly reaching for their phones.
20: I think uh, over time at the middle school, the um, focus was just as long as we don't see it in school, then we're not going to have a problem. And for students
25: that struggle with that, that's when we were a lot more adamant about the use of the pouches. There is also some parent pushback on this policy. Some argue there are valid reasons why kids should have constant access to their phones. Parent Melissa Taylor says she wants to be able to contact her 8th grade son in case of an emergency. With everything
9: that's going on in today's society, you want to be able to contact your kids or have your kids reach
25: out, you know, in the event that something serious happens. Superintendent Zreich says he understands that concern, but he offers a counterpoint from a public safety perspective.
20: Emergency personnel would say, we want the communication to all be handled centrally because we don't want to give mixed messages to families about what's happening, where to go, what to do.
25: Zreich hopes that eventually these pouches will become more widely accepted in the school community and ultimately make schools a happier and more engaging place to be for 90.9 WBUR. I'm Carrie Young.
0: Here on W coming up here on WBUR, malaria may be making a comeback in Bangladesh where experts had hoped it was on a steady decline. It's 7:50.
4: WBUR supporters include Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full time in person programs and part time in person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house October 4th and 5th. Register at open gradopenhouse. Here's a look at some of the
0: stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Attorney General Merrick Garland is set to test today before the House Judiciary Committee about the investigations into Hunter Biden and former President Donald Trump. 17 U.S. soldiers are at the center of a South Korean drug probe after police there say they distributed synthetic marijuana in the country. And the Federal Reserve is expected to hold interest rates steady during its meeting today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BassBerry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Sunny today with temperatures in the mid-70s. Right now, it's
14: 59 degrees in Boston.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
14: And I'm Leila Fadel. Let's turn to a story from more than 500 years ago, to the Spanish conquest of Mexico. For years, the story of European dominance has been largely accepted as historical truth, but a closer look at indigenous records suggests there's more to it than that. NPR's history podcast, Throughline, takes us back to the year 1521 to understand the rise, fall, and resilience of one of the great cities of the Aztec empire. And a note before we begin, this piece contains descriptions of violence. Here are Randa Fateh and Ramtin Arab Louis.
27: Many years ago, it is said that the god of sun and war instructed the people of a valley in what's now Mexico's capital to build a new city wherever they saw an eagle perched on a cactus, eating a snake. They searched and searched until finally they came across that eagle on an island in the middle of a lake. And it was there they built the floating city, Tenochtitlan.
26: Over the next 175 years, this city grew becoming an economic and political powerhouse.
28: So in the year 1500,
29: Tenochtitlan is one of the largest cities in the world. It has probably about 150,000 people. At this point, London might have like 60,000. Rome has maybe... Twenty-five thousand
27: But then, in the year 1521, it fell. For centuries, the story went that a tiny band of Spanish soldiers was able to vanquish the mighty Aztec Empire because they were inherently superior.
29: What happened in the 16th century was the birth of the great illusion that Europeans were more sophisticated, more cultured, more civilized than other peoples of the world. My name's Barbara Mundy. I'm an art historian, and I'm a professor at Tulane University.
27: Mundy's also studied Nahuatl, one of the indigenous languages of central Mexico. And her work draws on Nahuatl writing and art to fact check the conquistador's story.
29: I wrote a book called The Death of Aztec Tenochtitlan, The Life of Mexico City. And the, the title's a little bit deceptive because in fact, what I'm arguing in the book is that Aztec, Tenochtitlan, never died.
27: To understand what she means, we need to go back to before the Spanish even arrived in the great city, to 1519, when Hernán Cortés arrives in what Spain calls the New World.
29: Basically, he's he's in Cuba to really try to make a name and a living for himself.
27: So he sets his sights on this new empire to the West that everyone is whispering about the Great Aztec, or Mexica as they call themselves, empire.
29: And Cortez is one of the early explorers who, you know, musters some men and ships and makes it over to to the mainland.
27: Cortez and his men become allies with the rival Tlaxcala people. This is important because by the time they finally made it to Tenochtitlan, Mundi estimates there are around 20 indigenous soldiers marching alongside every Spaniard.
29: So it's really an indigenous majority army composed mainly of Tlaxcalans and their allies.
27: Not just a tiny band of Spaniards at all. The Aztec Emperor Moctezuma initially welcomes the newcomers as guests, but Cortez has other intentions.
18: I knew of no middle course to take with them in order to rid ourselves of so many dangers and hardships without utterly destroying both them and their city, which was the most beautiful object in the world.
26: Tenochtitlan crumbles, Cortes and his fellow soldiers are victorious, and a new, better world is born. At least, that's been the official narrative.
29: And of course, like all official narratives, it papers over a lot of, you know, uncomfortable truths.
27: Such is the fact that the two sides actually live for a time in an uneasy truce, until Cortez's men unexpectedly struck.
29: And now we really understand that this was equivalent, my mind at least, to a terrorist attack. The Spanish accounts of this, they, they speak almost nothing of it, but we have Nahuatl accounts of this. And when you read that Nahuatl, if you want a kind of gut-wrenching experience of what it was like, that now reveals how people were, you know, limbs were severed, how how the innocents were, were literally massacred.
27: After the massacre, the Mexica people kicked out the Spanish and their indigenous allies, but they left behind disease. Smallpox decimated the city. By the time Cortes returned, the empire was weak. In the end, Tenochtitlan held out for 93 days. On August 13, 1521, Cortes declared victory.
18: I had conquered Mexico and all of the other lands
27: which I held subject and have placed beneath your majesty's command. That's normally where the story ends. Tenochtitlan becomes a Spanish city. But Mundy says that's actually not where it ends at all.
14: It's really, really
29: hard to kill a city. And with that frame, I started to think more and look at different records, particularly indigenous records about the city of Tenochtitlan right after its fall. And what's clear is that Cortes decides that he's going to rebuild the capital right there in Tenochtitlan. And he can't do this alone. And so he has to depend on the indigenous infrastructure to do that, and he has to make alliances with indigenous elites to rebuild that city. And I think a lot about those people.
27: Mundy says that Mexica elites would more or less rebuild and lead Tenochtitlan for at least a decade after 1521.
29: And in fact, what we think of as a Spanish city after the conquest of the early 16th century was actually very much an indigenous or Mexica City.
14: That was Barbara Mundy, a historian at Tulane University, speaking with Randa Abdel Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei, the hosts of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. This is Morning Edition from NPR News.
13: I'm Leila Falded, And i Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Plate Stacks, celebrating the legacies of women astronomers with the exhibit, Her Luminous Distance, on view through October 22nd. Artist Aura Satz gives a talk about the installation on September 21st. Reserve your free tickets at platestacks.cfa.harvard.edu. I'm senior
14: business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury,
0: and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. GOP House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is struggling to bridge a divide in his party to pass a bill to avert a government shutdown in less than two weeks. It's Wednesday, September 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, public housing units in Massachusetts are sitting vacant for months and even years. Local authorities say they don't have the funds or staff to keep many of these units livable.
18: If we had more resources, both for materials, contracts, and especially labor and personnel, I have no doubt we'd be seeing these vacancies turn around in half the time.
0: Also this hour.
1: We are not looking to provoke We are simply laying out the facts as we understand them.
0: Canada's Prime Minister is defending his accusation that India ordered the killing of a Canadian citizen. And the Federal Reserve is widely expected to hold interest rates steady today. Sunny in the 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Ukraine's president is set to speak about his peace plan today at a special session of the U.N. Security Council in New York. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv it's the first time he'll address the body in person since Russia invaded Ukraine last year.
15: President Volodymyr Zelensky already spoke to the U.N.'s General Assembly on Tuesday. He slammed Russia for kidnapping Ukrainian children and weaponizing global food and energy during its war on Ukraine. And Zelensky says his peace plan is a way to fight back. For the
2: first time in modern history, we have a real chance to end the aggression on the terms of the nation
15: which was attacked Russia is a permanent member of the U.N. Security Council. Russian President Vladimir Putin is not attending this week and instead sent the country's top diplomat, Sergei Lavrov. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News,
3: Kiev. President Biden is on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly today. He'll meet the presidents of Brazil and Israel. Israeli troops have killed six Palestinians in several separate military operations. They're the latest deaths in more than a year of heightened violence in the region. Pierre's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv.
30: Israel launched what it called a counter-terrorism operation Tuesday night in the Janine refugee camp in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. The military says it carried out a drone strike there, plus a Palestinian roadside bomb targeted an army vehicle, and Palestinian gunmen opened fire at Israeli troops. Four Palestinians were reported killed. In another Palestinian refugee camp, Israeli troops killed one Palestinian. And in the blockaded Gaza Strip, Palestinian officials reported Israeli troops killed a Palestinian in a violent Violent protests along the Israeli fence with Gaza. In recent days, Palestinians have thrown explosive devices at the fence. And so Israel is banning Gaza day laborers from working in Israel. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
3: Later this morning, Attorney General Merrick Garland will testify before the House Judiciary Committee. He is expected to defend the work of two special prosecutors. One is investigating President Biden's son, Hunter. The other is investigating former President Donald Trump. Some Republicans on the House committee claim the Justice Department has persecuted Trump and overlooked alleged crimes by the younger Biden. The United Auto Workers remain on strike against three plants in three states. NPR's Camilla Dominowski says there is no sign of an effect on U.S. automobile discounts
9: yet. The union has threatened to put more plants on strike this Friday. The more plants could shut down because of ripple effects. And if it lasts a really long time, we might see sales go away. Not a lot of discounts this uh, this, this holiday season.
3: NPR's Camilla Dominowski reporting. This is NPR. From WBOR
0: in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. House Speaker Ron Mariano says he wants more answers on how much the state will spend to deal with an influx of migrants. Governor Healey says more than 11,000 people in the state's shelter system are new arrivals from other countries. She's asked for $250 million for that system. Mariano wants to know how much more could be needed.
23: The administration's doing The best that they can do to to gather all this information and give us some hard numbers. And it's not an easy thing to do. It's people coming from all different countries and coming in at all different points of uh, entry. So it's, it's, it's a difficult challenge.
0: Healy is asking for help from the Biden administration. She says the current influx is, quote, not sustainable. For the first time, 10 Boston high schools will offer an advanced placement course in African-American studies. City leaders say it'll provide culturally relevant curriculum in a district where one-third of students are Black. More from WBUR's Emily Piper-Villillo.
14: Boston joins roughly a dozen other Massachusetts districts and more than 600 nationwide in the second year of this pilot program. The course teaches students about the African-American experience, but omits discussion of some topics, including the Black Lives Matter movement, following conservative pushback. Tech Boston teacher Tanisha Milton will be teaching the new
3: course. She says roughly 60 students have applied to take it this year. This is a whole
12: entire course that's dedicated to acknowledging the contributions, the the greatness of African-Americans. So they're excited to learn about that.
14: District leaders say they hope to expand the program to more schools in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily piper Valillo.
0: Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is voicing support for a pair of bills that would give her more power to crack down on wage theft in the state. Data show Massachusetts workers miss out on an estimated $1 billion in stolen wages each year. The proposal would allow the AG's office to investigate complaints of wage theft. They would also give Campbell the ability to take civil action against employers who steal from their staff. The city of Somerville is holding a special poll that any resident 12 and over can take part in. And city officials say so far there seems to be a lot of interest.
29: WBUR's Josie
0: Gorino explains.
29: The excitement is over what's called a participatory budget. The city has set aside a million dollars and wants to know how residents would like to see it spent. Somerville's budget analyst Megan Huckenpoller says the number one suggestion so far is to make streets and sidewalks safer. The second is centered around climate change.
16: Having misting stations in parks and in places that adults can access, and then the idea of shade structures. In addition to tree plantings, provide natural shade as well as
19: other benefits.
29: The city has whittled down the suggestions to 20. Residents have until October 13th to weigh in, either online or at various sites around the city. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. It's 8.07.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theatre, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheatre.org. And Brown University's Executive Master of Business Administration program Rethinking the Role of Business as a Vehicle for Change. Professional.brown.edu
0: the Red Sox fell to the Rangers 6-4 to last night in Arlington, Texas. Boston had just five hits in the loss. The teams will wrap up their series this afternoon. Sunny today and in the mid-70s. Clear overnight. Temperatures will be in the 50s. Sunny again tomorrow and in the lower 70s. Right now it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
13: WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
13: And I'm Leila Fadel in
14: Washington, D.C. This morning, House Republicans are preparing tough questions for Attorney General Merrick Garland.
7: They want to press him on how the Justice Department handled the investigation into Hunter Biden, the president's son, as well as the indictments of former President Donald Trump.
14: NPR's Jacqueline Diaz will be watching this hearing before the House Judiciary Committee for us, and she's with us now. Good morning, Jacqueline. Good morning. So Merrick Garland is testifying at a pretty
26: unprecedented time with these indictments. What are you expecting? So it's pretty standard for the head of the DOJ to come before Congress as part of the committee's oversight powers. Mm -hmm. But Attorney General Garland is going to be in the hot seat. Garland has made several efforts to portray his office as independent of the president and that it makes decisions on cases with no interference from Biden or anyone else. Still, Republicans have long criticized Garland and the DOJ, claiming there's been unequal treatment since Trump, their de facto party leader, has been indicted twice on 44 federal charges, and Hunter Biden was recently indicted on three gun charges. Now, these are very different cases, but they are behind the ramped up attacks on Garland and his agency from Republicans. Meanwhile, Democrats say Republicans aren't really looking for facts or truth, just a political advantage. And that's the context in which Garland testifies today.
14: So what do you expect the Republican-led House committee to focus
26: on? Well, the Republicans have made it clear they want to focus on Hunter Biden. They've spent months in the House investigating Hunter Biden in an attempt to link wrongdoing to his father, President Biden. But so far, there's been no concrete evidence In an interview with the Washington Examiner this week, Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan made it clear that a major focus for the committee this morning will be on Hunter Biden and special counsels Jack Smith and David Weiss. Smith, of course, is the head prosecutor in the federal Trump criminal cases. Weiss is the special counsel in charge of investigating the president's son. Hunter Biden has been under federal investigation in Delaware for years now. Mm -hmm. David Weiss, who Trump appointed, has investigated him since 2019. And in August, Weiss was made special counsel by Garland. This was only done after a plea deal between Biden and federal prosecutors fell apart. As part of the plea deal, he would have avoided prosecution on a felony firearm offense. And earlier this month, Biden was indicted on felony gun charges. But in the middle of all of this, two IRS agents came forward and accused the DOJ of giving Biden's son preferential treatment and slow walking the investigation into him. Jordan has said that Weiss himself will be brought in front of the committee to answer some of these questions sometime later this fall. And you said Special Counsel Jack Smith, the man who indicted Trump, will be a topic of interest as well? Many Republican lawmakers have long defended former President Trump. They've portrayed him as a victim of politics following his indictments this summer for attempting to subvert democracy in one case and knowingly withholding classified documents in another. And the GOP, along with Trump himself, continue to claim that Jack Smith is using these criminal indictments against Trump as a way to attack the former president and to interfere in the 2024 election.
14: And really quickly, what do we expect Garland to say?
26: Garland is expected to defend the Justice Department. He's not going to directly comment on those cases regarding Trump or Hunter Biden. The agency makes a habit of not commenting on open investigations. But he will defend the work of his agency amid all of this public scrutiny and warn against attacks against public servants like Weiss and Smith. And NPR's Jacqueline
14: Diaz, thanks.
26: Thank you. As
7: world leaders meet in New York, two nations whose relations have been strained for a while find themselves in a very public diplomatic face-off. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has accused the Indian government of ordering the assassination last June of a Canadian citizen, the Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Najjar, on Canadian soil. Najjar, who emigrated from India, has lived two decades in British Columbia. India condemns the allegation, calling it absurd. New Delhi accuses Ottawa of harboring six separatists, describing them as terrorists and extremists. Each country has expelled the other's senior diplomats. Meanwhile, the U.S. has expressed concern about the allegations, but has generally stayed pretty quiet. Now, to dig deeper on this, we've called on Milan Vaishnav, senior fellow and director of the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Now, before we talk about the Biden administration's place in the story. Let's get a a broader picture here. How, How large is the community of six of Indian descent outside of India?
20: Well, we have about 23 million Sikhs uh, inside of India and about 3 million outside, of which around 800,000 or so reside in Canada. So it is a small but pretty significant uh, minority in Canada, specifically because it's concentrated in certain pockets of the country. So come election time, the Sikh vote is something that uh, all parties across the political spectrum in Canada really seek to mobilize.
7: What about how active is the Sikh independence movement within India, the the movement for an ethno-religious Sikh state?
20: Well, today there are really only limited pockets of support for a sovereign Sikh state within India. Of course, India has had uh, a period of significant insurgency in the state of Punjab, which is the North Indian state that is home to the majority of the country's Sikhs. This gained steam in the 1980s, uh, but really ended in the 1990s, But it's important to point out that this idea still retains significant traction among elements of the diaspora in places like Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, where there are a large concentration of Sikh immigrants.
7: And what's the tone of the Modi government's relationship with India's Sikhs?
20: Well, you know, I would say that it's a mixed bag. Uh, there have been uh, there's been a real uptick in uh, in, in tensions between the community. It, you may recall that a few years ago there were very large farmers protests that uh, really emerged from the northern states of Haryana and Punjab. Again, where there is a very large Sikh population, uh, in an effort to put down those protests, uh, many affiliated with uh, Prime Minister Modi's party and his government. Uh, used pretty harsh language describing the Sikhs as anti-nationals, as anti-India, as anti-Hindu. And that certainly uh, raised the volume on tensions between two communities that really for the vast majority of the last 75 years since India gained independence have lived and coexisted peacefully.
7: So just how important then is the Sikh community for Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as, as a political constituency?
20: So I think it's it's quite important. You know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau likes to boast uh, when he meets Prime Minister Modi that he has more Sikhs in his cabinet than Prime Minister Modi does. Uh, there are many quite uh, vocal uh, Sikh community organizations, uh, religious groups, gurdwaras or Sikh temples uh, that are active not just in politics, but also in, you know, the civic life. Uh, and so... Uh, this is something that is going to be an animated political issue in Canada, undoubtedly, but it's also really soured tensions between these two governments.
7: You mentioned how the Biden administration has stayed pretty much quiet on this. Uh, what, What have you gleaned from their particular position on this? And why do you think it's been so silent? Well, look, the United States is in a very sticky
20: spot. You know, the administration has gone to extraordinary lengths to consolidate a strategic partnership with India They view India as a vital democratic counterbalance to a rising China. You know, now the White House finds itself needing to walk a fine line between demonstrating solidarity with a major NATO ally, which is Canada, while not alienating one of its most valuable strategic partners, India. So the U.S. has cautiously acknowledged Canada's concerns, but refrained from any direct criticism
7: of India. Milan Vaishnav directs the South Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.
14: The latest round of Latin Grammy Award nominees were announced yesterday. As NPR's Anastasia Silkas notes, a songwriter, not a performer, leads this year's pack of potential winners.
12: A hit-making Mexican-American songwriter and producer, Edgar Barrera, earned 13 nominations in all, including two in the Song of the Year category. One was for the song Un Porciento by Grupo Frontera and Bad Bunny. The three musicians who trail Barrera in nominations are all singers from Colombia Camilo, Carol G., and Shakira. Another Colombian creator also received seven nominations, songwriter Kevin Mauricio Cruz Moreno, who works under the name Keitin, and he's one of Shakira's songwriters as well. As in the general Grammy Awards, the Latin Grammys now sport a sprawling minimum of 10 nominees in each of the so-called Big Four categories. Record of the Year, which is given for the recorded performance of a song, Album of the Year, Song of the Year, which is a songwriting honor, and Best New Artist. For the first time in its nearly quarter-decade history, the Latin Grammy Awards ceremony is taking place outside the US, But it won't be in Latin America, either. Instead, it will take place in Seville, Spain. Part of that might be the popularity of the Spanish singer Rosalía, who won the Album of the Year award in 2022 for her project Motomami. But there's another more purely transactional reason. The government of the Andalusia province, which includes Seville, gave the Latin Recording Academy $19 million to produce the Latin Grammys there. But the Academy promises the ceremony will return to the U.S. for its 25th anniversary next year. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York.
22: Y lo usaré solo para decirte lo mucho que lo siento. Que si me ven con otra luna disco, solo es perdiendo el tiempo, baby. Pa que te mie-
0: This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chakravorty. You're starting your Wednesday with WBR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition: How the ongoing strike by the United Auto Workers at the three big, big auto makers may impact car prices and availability. It's 8:20.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through offsite solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And the Freedom Trail Foundation. Experience over 250 years of history on Boston's iconic trail with its 16 historic sites and tours. thefreedomtrail.org. Yellowstone National
30: Park's iconic bison herds.
12: The buffalo, when they start following their migration pattern, their natural instinct is to come out of Yellowstone. They don't understand these borders that we've created for them, that the government's created for them.
30: When they leave the park, they're not protected. So this year, more than 1,500 out-of-bounds bison were quarantined, hunted, or sent to slaughter. Learn more on Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station
0: a high near 74 today under sunny skies it stays mostly clear tonight as it falls to a low around 55 tomorrow sunny with a high near 72 right now it's 61 degrees in boston
19: support for npr comes from the station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting helping nonprofit organizations including social service organizations with their accounting needs more at yourparttimecontroller.com from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
14: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falded.
7: And I'm A. Martinez. Malaria has plagued humanity for millennia. According to the World Health Organization, it kills more than 600,000 people a year, mostly in Africa. And that's despite enormous efforts to develop treatments and control the mosquitoes that carry the disease. There are some bright spots, though. Reporter Ari Daniel takes us to Bangladesh, a country that's slashed its malaria numbers drastically, though the parasite isn't going down without a fight. In the heart
30: of Dhaka, Bangladesh's thronging capital. Deep inside a laboratory, Kasturi Haldar stares down the barrel of a microscope.
22: If you look down here, you will see red blood cells, and then you'll see the lovely little parasites that are purple.
30: Haldar is a visiting microbiologist from the University of Notre Dame. For much of her career, she's been like a sentinel, tracking this parasite that causes malaria to help develop new drugs. So how do you think of those things there? You think of them as your foe?
22: No, no, no. I think about them as microbes you have to understand better. They're, they're complex and they deserve your respect.
30: Because they're a formidable opponent. Much of what we've attacked them with, the parasites have managed to outmaneuver, all the while causing tremendous amounts of human suffering. It's a public health problem. A problem that Dr. Ching Shui Pru knows well. It's dusk in rural southeastern Bangladesh, and Prue rests outside on a bench after a full day of work. For 24 years, he's devoted his life to treating people with malaria. Did you ever get malaria? Uh,
17: Yes, I did. I did. Uh, When I was in medical school, I suffered four times in a year. It was a very difficult time.
30: That last bout hit him especially hard, and it came right before a big exam. While Prue tried to study, inside his red blood cells, the parasite was reproducing, eventually causing those cells to rupture. Each time that happened, agony. High fevers, chills, and severe headaches, vomiting, and nausea.
17: The nausea was the worst. I couldn't study, and then I went for the
30: exam with 101 or so Fahrenheit of fever. So I had to face it. Prue was treated with a couple of drugs, including one called chloroquine. The side effects were rough. It's a very nauseating drug and a terrible drug. But he was cured. For decades, chloroquine was one of the most valuable malarial treatments worldwide. But then, in Africa and Asia, something happened. The parasite stopped responding. It had developed resistance to chloroquine.
17: Once malaria parasite is resistant to drugs, people start dying because it's a lethal disease.
30: The fatalities surged into the millions, hitting sub-Saharan Africa especially hard. So doctors turned to another drug called artemisinin. It had taken decades to puzzle out how to make it and how to do so affordably. Once the drug became available, health officials in Bangladesh were so hopeful, they enlisted thousands of community health workers to go door to door to make sure people with malaria were being treated with artemisinin. On a Friday morning, one of these workers, Gubal Akhtar, walks along an unpaved country road wrapped in a crimson shawl. She approaches a household. 30-year-old Asha Guddin lives here with his family. A month earlier, after working a construction job along the border with Myanmar, Guddin spiked a fever and felt terrible. So he sought out Akhtar, his local health worker, Sure enough, he was malaria-positive, so she gave him artemisinin.
28: That night, I called him, how he's feeling, and uh, he took his uh, drug properly or not.
30: Over the three-day regimen, Gooden made a full recovery. He's not alone. Artemisinin almost never fails. Dr. Ching Shui Pru. This drug is a marvelous drug. It's, it's a perfect drug. And it's produced astonishing results. Between 2008 and 20, malaria cases in Bangladesh plummeted by 93%. It decimated the parasites. And government officials dared to imagine something audacious. Elimination of the disease. But malaria wouldn't give up so easily. Across the border in Myanmar and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, new strains of the parasite were turning up, ones resistant to artemisinin. Health officials knew if resistance was bubbling next door, it was only a matter of time before it showed up in Bangladesh. You
17: have to be alert. You have to be afraid of it. The parasites always have a, inborn tendency to fight off the killing drug.
30: So Prue and others started a monitoring program in the parts of the country where malaria still circulates. They draw blood from people who have the disease but aren't responding well to artemisinin treatment. And then they put the samples on a bus headed for the capital.
22: They come overnight in a cooler. On the bus? On the bus.
30: They're then brought here to this lab at the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research, Bangladesh. And in one of those samples, Kasturi Haldar says, They found it. Ah! She points to the glass slide under the microscope.
22: If you look down here, you will see...
30: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So, but what I'm seeing is malaria in the red blood cells.
22: Yeah, yeah. And this strain we found to be resistant.
30: Evidence that a resistant strain of malaria was in Bangladesh. So far, it's just one sample.
22: If you only find like one strain that's resistant, it doesn't matter as long as it doesn't spread. But that's what we need to be able to see is whether we are getting dissemination.
30: For Dr. Ching Shui Pru, all this discussion of resistance pains him, but he's not surprised.
17: I'm afraid that malaria
30: has a certain history of coming back. So for Bangladesh, the question becomes, is the promise of malaria elimination still within reach? Or will the parasites gain the upper hand once again? Ari Daniel, NPR News.
7: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. A WBUR and ProPublica investigation reveals the biggest reasons why many public housing units in Massachusetts are sitting vacant for months and even years. It's 829.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. Find something fascinating this September 25th through October 1st from wearable tech runway shows to hands-on robotics, from industry-leading health experts to the family-friendly science carnival. Visit cambridgesciencefestival.org to find out more
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Attorney General Merrick Garland is scheduled to testify today before the House Judiciary Committee. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports.
14: House Republicans have repeatedly argued that the Justice Department has been weaponized against conservatives. Today, Merrick Garland will face one of his harshest critics, Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, who's floated the idea of impeaching him. Garland is likely to face numerous questions about Justice Department investigations, including the probe into Hunter Biden's business dealings and special counsel Jack Smith's investigation
4: into former President Donald Trump.
6: The union representing workers at Ford plants in Canada says it's reached a tentative agreement with the company. As Dan Karpenschuk reports, the deal came together as the union extended its strike deadline.
17: The union, Unifor, was ready to strike just after midnight Tuesday, but said it extended the deadline by 24 hours after Ford made what's described as a substantive offer. In a statement, Unifor would only say that the deal reached for its 5,600 Ford workers addressed the core issue of wages, pensions, and job security as the industry transitions to electric vehicles.
6: Ford's tentative deal in Canada comes as the United Auto Workers continue their targeted strike against Detroit's big three automakers. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoy. More school districts in Massachusetts are cracking down on student cell phone use. They're using lockable cases that physically bar students from accessing their phones during the school day. Some school officials say they noticed a rise in cell phone dependence after the pandemic. And as WBUR's carry Young reports, schools hope to improve student engagement and social skills.
25: Starting this year, students at Salem High School are required to lock their phones in a small gray pouch when they enter the building. English teacher Abby Sherwood says after just a couple weeks, she's already seeing a difference in her class.
26: And I think
19: that overall students are
26: less distracted because that other narrative of you know, their online life or what's going on, it just it, it isn't there, so they just seem a lot more focused.
25: Some students are upset about losing cell phone access, but many teens say the new policy is helping them make more social connections. There are lingering concerns among parents, including how they'd reach their kids if there was a school emergency. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: Crews working on the red line of the T say a train came dangerously close to them as they were on the tracks Monday. A new report obtained by the Boston Globe reveals a train driver blew past the workers going 25 miles per hour despite being signaled to stop. This is at least the 10th time a train has gotten close to hitting workers this year. Just last week, the Federal Transit Administration told the MBTA it needs to take immediate action to avoid employee injuries and deaths. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is getting $82 million to help recovery efforts for endangered North Atlantic right whales. Scientists estimate there are fewer than 340 left in the wild. The money will be used to help prevent vessel strikes and to advance fishing technology to prevent entanglements. Both are leading causes for right whale deaths.
4: It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy. Knightfoundation.org. The Red Sox squandered an early lead last night in Texas.
0: They lost the Rangers 6-4. to The teams will play the rubber match of their series this afternoon. Longtime Dartmouth football coach Buddy Tevens has died. He grew up in Kingston and played football at Dartmouth himself. As a co- she helped reduce player injuries by getting rid of tackling in practices, a move which quickly spread to other colleges and the NFL. Buddy Tevens was 66. Another great day today, weather-wise. We'll have clear skies and high temperatures in the mid-70s. It falls to around 55 tonight, then tomorrow, sunny again and slightly cooler with a high in the low 70s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
19: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale, dataik And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
19: And I'm Leila
14: Fadel in Washington, D.C. Auto workers and the big three Detroit automakers seem to be stuck at an impasse six days into a historic strike.
7: Four GM and Chrysler parent company Stellantis are negotiating with the United Auto Workers Union, but there's no indication of an imminent deal. And now the UAW is threatening to expand its strike unless there's progress in the talk. So what does this mean if you're thinking about buying a new car?
14: NPR's Camilla Domenoski joins us now to talk about this. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Layla. So you talk to car shoppers all the time. Is this something people are worried about?
9: It's on people's minds for sure. Uh, Last week, I was reporting on these strikes, but I also swung by the Detroit Auto Show and spoke with some people who were there, you know, thinking about buying a new car soon. That includes Chris Deneau, and he summed up his view on the strikes like this. Is it solvable? Absolutely. When will it be
30: solved? I don't know. Am I too worried? Not really.
9: On the other hand, there was also
10: Samir Joshi. It's going to drive down the supply of cars. So again, the dealerships are going to, you know, gouge people for more money. they will sell them over
6: MSRP.
9: Again. <laughs> again, yeah. Over MSRP, he means sell them over sticker price, like they were doing not too long ago. Uh-huh. Both those men, for the record, are pretty much right.
14: Okay, but how are they both right? One's worried, one isn't.
9: Yeah, well, let's start with the case for not worrying. And to be clear, I'm talking about as a car shopper here, Mm -hmm. right? The strike has other economic impacts that we're not talking about right now. But it's just a numbers game, right? Inventories, that's the vehicles that have been built and are ready to be sold. They're at their highest level in two years. And The number of plants that are on strike right now, it's just not huge. The the unionized automakers, decades ago, they were like 90% of the car market, right? Today, it's a different picture. They're less than 40%, and most of their plants are still running. The union's strike strategy here has been to start small, pick a few plants to strike, and then threaten to expand from there. So right now, in terms of vehicles that are directly affected by the strike, Mm -hmm. you're looking at the Jeep, Wrangler, and Gladiator, GMC Canyon, the Chevy Colorado, and you've got the Ford, Bronco, and Ranger. And that's it, right? Hmm. Now, it does depend on the vehicle, whether that's going to have an impact on supply in the near term. Right now, there are a lot of Jeep Wranglers on lots. There are not a lot of Broncos out there. I feel like there's probably a cowboy joke in there, if I can make it it work. But in general, this is not about to cause a sudden shortage of cars across America. Okay, so that's the case for not worrying. What's the case for Mm -hmm. worrying? So it's about looking ahead, right? The union has threatened to put more plants on strike this Friday. More plants could shut down because of ripple effects. And if it lasts a really long time, we might see sales go away. Not a lot of discounts this holiday season. You know, this could affect used cars too. Maybe it will be slow if that happens. But car prices are already
14: so high, some people are worried. Yeah. NPR's Camilla Domenoski, who will be back with her cowboy joke maybe. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Layla. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says the central bank is trying to strike a delicate balance, raising interest rates high enough to bring down inflation, but not so high as to torpedo the economy.
7: Yeah, markets are betting that balancing act will prompt Powell and his colleagues to hold interest rates steady when they meet today, but investors will be on the lookout for any signals about where interest rates might go in the future.
14: NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to discuss this. Hi, Scott.
7: Good morning, Leila.
14: Good morning. So rates have already gone up a lot in the last year and a half, and inflation is down. Do Fed officials feel like their work is done?
23: Not yet. Uh, inflation has come down a lot uh, since last summer when it topped out at just over 9%, but it's still north of 2%, which is the Fed's target. So the question Pal and his colleagues are wrestling with is, are interest rates high enough now that inflation will continue to come down on its own, Or do they need to push rates even higher and possibly raise the risk of recession? For the moment, uh, the Fed is expected to take a breather and leave rates where they are. But Michael Pierce, who's with Oxford Economics, thinks they'll pair that with a message that rates could go higher in November or December.
18: It's a no-brainer for the Fed to remain sounding hawkish this meeting. I mean, they want to keep that optionality of additional hikes if they
23: need to. Of course, higher interest rates make it more expensive to borrow money for a house or a car or just to carry a balance on your credit card. Higher mortgage rates have been a drag on the housing market this year, but so far the overall economy has been handling higher borrowing costs pretty well.
14: August inflation a little higher than expected. How does that affect the Fed's decision making?
23: Yeah, the last cost of living report showed annual inflation in August was 3.7%. That's up from 3.2% in July. Most of the increase was the result of rising gas prices, and we've seen uh, those oil production cuts by Russia and Saudi Arabia push the price of crude oil up to more than $90 a barrel. Stephen Rusciuto, who's the chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Security, says that's probably not going to sway the Fed on its own. But if higher transportation costs start to push up other prices, that could be a different story.
10: I think they'll look past a political situation that's moving energy prices, but pass-through would worry them and you've gotta wait to see if you're gonna get the pass through.
23: Last month, for example, we did see airfares go up as a result of rising jet fuel prices. Most of the other inflation forces the Fed's been watching though, things like rent and service prices, are generally moving in the right direction, even if they are taking longer to come down than most people would like.
14: So does that mean we're gonna be living with higher interest rates for a while?
23: Possibly. Um, Back in June, a lot of Fed policymakers thought they'd be able to start cutting interest rates next year. Uh, On average, they were predicting that rates would drop maybe by a full percentage point in 2024. We will get an updated round of Fed forecast today, and Michael Pierce thinks that may show policymakers in more of a holding pattern.
18: It feels like there's a higher bar for raising rates, but also a higher bar for cutting rates as well. It just feels like the committee's setting themselves up for a prolonged pause and just waiting to see where the next few months of data will take us.
23: Yeah, Powell said last month that the Fed is navigating by stars under cloudy skies. And <laughs> you can now add some additional fog to that picture. Uh, we've got the UAW strike, uh, the looming threat of a government shutdown, the resumption of student loan payments. So there's a lot of uncertainty and you can expect the Fed to proceed with caution.
14: NPR Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, the Paramount Ranch in Southern California served as a backdrop for movies and TV shows for nearly 100 years. It was badly damaged by fires in 2018, and now climate change is demanding difficult decisions about what to preserve as the site is rebuilt. To hear the story, listen to NPR on your phone, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News.
0: You're listening to WBUR on a Wednesday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report has a preview of a report out today from the Federal Reserve with officials' projections for future inflation and economic growth. Mid-70s and sunny today. Clear skies and mid-50s tonight. Low 70s tomorrow and sunny. Right now it's 62 degrees in Boston.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival. Happening in Copley Square, October 14th. Fun for all ages, and it's free. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
0: Eastern Bank and Cambridge Trust will soon merge into one company. The half-billion-dollar deal will make Eastern the largest bank-owned independent investment advisor in the state. The merger is expected to be complete sometime early next year. Marlboro-based Boston Scientific has reached a deal to buy the private medical tech company Relievant Med Systems. The $850 million deal will give Boston Scientific rights over a Relivent device to treat chronic lower back pain. Leaders expect the deal to close in the first half of next year. It's 844.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house, October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu gradopenhouse.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. More than 2,000 apartments that are supposed to house the poorest people throughout Massachusetts are sitting empty, sometimes for years. A WBWAR and ProPublica investigation shows the biggest reason state-subsidized units are vacant is a backlog of maintenance and renovation. Public housing authorities say it's hard to get these units in shape because they're cash-strapped and short-staffed. WB Wars Christine Wilmson explains.
24: Michael Laura steps down the rickety stairs to the basement of a duplex in Watertown. He's the executive director of the housing authority that manages this low-income unit. We look down at the drain system.
11: This is decades old. And no one tried to fix it and maintain it when there wasn't funding to do it.
24: He points to an old water stain four inches from the floor. That's how high the water gets sometimes.
11: So they capped it and put in a sump pump over there, hoping that would solve the problem. It doesn't.
24: This unit sat vacant for 10 months because maintenance staff and contractors were busy on other projects. Wet basements and mold are persistent problems for the nearly 170 units in this public housing complex called Lexington Gardens. Laura even recommends tenants put their washers and dryers on wood pallets to keep them safe. Fixing all these problems takes a lot of money, something Laura says the state fails to fully provide.
18: If we had more resources, both for materials, contracts, and especially labor and personnel, I have no doubt we'd be seeing these vacancies turned around in half the time.
24: Watertown is one of more than 200 housing agencies that are financially dependent on the legislature to carry out programs and maintain safe properties. Housing authorities also receive rent from tenants. Laura and I head upstairs to another apartment and meet maintenance supervisor Pat Breen. He is one of six men who repair and maintain Watertown's 550 units.
31: It's not easy. It's a nightmare.
24: State officials expect Breen's team to clean, paint, and fix minor damage in a unit in less than 60 days. Breen says that's impossible because of the emergencies they have to deal with.
31: A pipe is burst or uh, an apartment is flooded. You get to drop everything, go do that. There's not much more you can do, really, when you don't have enough staff.
24: That's a complaint Donna Brown-Rigo hears a lot from local housing authorities. She is the director of the Massachusetts Chapter of the National Association of Housing and Redevelopment Officials. Well, it's always about the money. They've been underfunded both on the operational side and the capital side for a number of years. Brown-Rigo lobbied state lawmakers this year to double last year's budget to manage and operate the state's units. Instead, the legislature approved a more modest 16 percent increase. The state set aside some money for Watertown and a few other housing authorities for renovations. State Senator Lydia Edwards co-chairs the legislature's Joint Committee on Housing. She says she's pushed for more funding. We have to invest and we're going to have to make it our our mission in the next decade to to catch up. There's another problem looming. There are nearly 42,000 state public housing units, and the average age is 57 years. Massachusetts officials say there's at least a $3 billion backlog to replace components that are past their useful life, like roofs, plumbing, and heating. Here's Brown-Rigo. The older they get, the more it takes to, to fix them up. Some of these units haven't been touched in more than 20 years. That's the case in the coastal fishing city of Gloucester. Most apartments have the original floors, windows, and cabinets. Housing Director David Holden says the buildings need $21 million for renovations, but the state only gave them about $600,000 last year.
31: We end up having to triage those most immediate needs. And each year, the list of deferred items grows.
24: Holden says he's tapped city and private resources to help finance small projects for housing designated for older residents and people with disabilities.
31: People have the right to age in dignity with a decent place to live. And our ability to maintain that becomes more difficult every year.
24: Not being able to fix small problems has had a domino effect. Units have been demolished in places like Adams, Lowell, and Fall River, Some because they've become uninhabitable. Affordable housing advocate Brown-Rigo says that can't happen. We can't let a single unit go offline. We need to preserve them all. But advocates say the current funding for public housing won't make a dent in the problem. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Christine Wilmson.
0: Tomorrow on WBUR, some state-founded housing has been repurposed. We visit units that are being used as offices, after-school programs, and even a police station. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have reaction to the ceasefire ending violence for now in an Armenian region of Azerbaijan. It's 8:50.
13: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. See Salem's only collection of authentic 17th century objects from the infamous trials. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. As genetic studies go global, scientists have found a gene variant that
4: raises the risk of Parkinson's disease in people of African ancestry.
18: Our basis of knowledge for genetics in Parkinson's disease was limited to northern European populations, so we decided to seek ways to globalize genetics.
4: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
8: Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Attorney General Merrick Garland testifies today before a Republican-led House committee investigating what GOP members claim is the weaponization of the Justice Department. The Biden administration plans to hire 20,000 people for its green jobs training program called the American Climate Corps. And Governor Moore Healey is asking for federal help to deal with an influx of migrants to the state. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business,
19: powering possibilities.
0: Sunny in mid-70s today, mid-50s tonight under clear skies. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston.
11: Housing affordability in the U.S. may be about to get even worse. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by
8: C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by the Wall Street Journal, WSJ's Take on the Week podcast breaks down upcoming financial events to help listeners navigate the markets. New episodes available every Sunday.
11: From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshaw, in for David Brancaccio. There are some 40 million homes across the country which are paying insurance premiums that are lower than what's needed to cover the amount of risk they face from climate change. A new report says a price correction is coming and it will make homes unaffordable for many current homeowners, let alone future ones. Marketplace's Nova Sappho is here to explain. Good morning. So we generally assume insurers are pretty good at pricing risks. So why are they off? What's going on here?
16: Yeah, so this report is from the First Street Foundation. That's a nonprofit that researches the intersection of climate change and the real estate market. And it finds that there are two factors at work. One is regulatory. The obvious example in California, where I am, two major insurers in the last 12 months have pulled out because the state limits how much you can raise premiums. That's masked the risks, according to the report. The second issue is the increasing frequency of natural disasters and predictive modeling has sometimes failed to incorporate the types of structures at risk, what they're made of. And that's what's starting to change and change the outlook. What does this mean in terms of home ownership, housing affordability uh, in the years to come? Yeah, in up to about 30 years from now, what the report says is that if insurers' costs are now artificially low, when and if that changes, it's going to either reduce the values of these homes, make people move altogether, or cause more people to skip disaster insurance, and that raises a whole other set of problems. Uh, we've already seen huge premium increases in many markets, often doubling in price, and the report says we should expect those trends to continue. All right, Marketplace's Nova Saffo. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
11: All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up nine-tenths of a percent. S&P, NASDAQ, and Dow futures are all up in the one to two-tenths percent range, with the Dow future up 90 points. The yield on the 10-year treasury is 4.345%.
8: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by VantageScore. VantageScore credit scoring models are used by over 3,000 banks and fintechs, including nine of the top 10. Learn how VantageScore helps expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workhorse management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people.
11: This week we are looking at tipping and how norms and practices around that have been changing here in the US. But how we do things is not how everyone does things. And so today we're taking a peek at how a debate over tipping is unfolding for a longtime US ally, South Korea. South Korea is one of many places around the world where you are not expected to leave a tip. Sun Young-jong is a reporter for our news partners at the BBC. She's based in Seoul. And she spoke with my colleague, David Brancaccio.
31: The U.S. has a tradition of tipping, restaurants is the first place you think of, at least for good service in some settings. Now, this is not true in South Korea. You don't tip?
28: Well, David, Korea has been quite keen on adopting customs from the United States, but tipping is probably the last thing they want from America. When you go out for a meal here, you just head to the counter, settle your bill, and guess what? The bill shows only the meal prices. It's actually against the law for the restaurant to list extra charges like VAT or service fees separate from the food prices. In other words, if a meal costs $100 and the owner wants to include, let's say, a 10% service charge. they have to give you a final bill for $110 and cannot force you to pay a tip on top of that. Beyond this legal stuff, it's also kind of cultural thing as well. Koreans feel that it's the employer's responsibility, not the customers, to pay their workers fairly, especially with the recent major improvement of the national minimum wages, which is around 7.5 US dollar. Many people here think that restaurant workers are already quite well covered. Also, they benefit from relatively decent social welfare system, including universal health care. So public feel that there's not much urgency to tip restaurant workers.
31: Would you say, Young, that it might even be a little insulting if a U.S. traveler were in South Korea and tried to tip?
28: In general, people feel slightly awkward to receive cash and money for doing their own work here.
31: In fact, you've been talking to some restaurant workers in South Korea, and this is what you found,
10: right?
28: Yes. My
10: name is Jong Choi Lee. I run the Tteokbokki restaurant in Seoul. Tipping could potentially have a negative impact on customer service culture here. If tipping becomes the norm and isn't mandatory, customers who don't tip might be at a disadvantage.
31: Young, any move in South Korea for change I mean, from restaurants or maybe other types of companies who wouldn't mind importing this tradition of allowing customers to tip?
28: Well, last month, Koreans answered to, so let's say, Uber, Kakao Mobility, try something new by asking passengers to give uh, voluntary tips to their drivers. But uh, quite unexpectedly, this small change is set up quite a big argument with people debating whether Korea should introduce a tipping. The result was only about one out of every six people supported the tipping. But when it comes to restaurants, there are some exceptions as well. For instance, in fancy Japanese restaurants that offer all-you-can-eat style tuna sashimi, tipping between $8 and $40 is no more than expected to incentivize the chef to serve you with a better quality tuna. But I think it's more about probably unique social stuff here in south korea is quite big on group dining so in those fancy establishment the senior person in the group might throw a tip to show off their authority or generosity
31: the bbc's sinyang jiang speaking with us from seoul thank you so much
28: thank you
11: that was marketplaces david brancaccio there our producers are james graham ollie dalbert Hansen, nick perez ariana rosas alex schroeder and erica soderstrom Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
24: WBUR supporters include
4: AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished.